Well, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19, and we'll begin in verse 16. But as you're doing that, I want to call to your attention Isaiah 53, 4, and 5, and just listen to this for a moment as you find John 19. Isaiah 53 is, of course, this this haunting and glorious chapter which tells us in meticulous detail of the death of Christ, and it, it contains a very important declaration concerning our Lord in verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, Jesus Christ at the cross, he carried the griefs and the sorrows specifically that were supposed to be yours and mine, and yet he carried them. Now, this verse, verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it begins a three-verse section that contains many first-person plural pronouns, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions. In fact, we hear this 10 times. And so this text is really saturated with the idea of substitution, of Christ doing something for us, on our behalf. And the prophet says he has taken our griefs. Now, a very broad translation of this idea of our griefs, most often used in its 24 Old Testament uses, it speaks of disease, it speaks of sickness, it speaks of illness. It is a mistake, however, to take the charismatic interpretation that one of the reasons Jesus died on the cross was so that we could be healed of all of our diseases. Uh, This text is speaking of infinitely higher things, atonement from sin. And the conclusion that the atonement now gives us a right to claim healing from all illness, that is false. The Bible has plenty of evidence that suffering, including physical suffering, is part of the life of the believer in Christ. And in fact, this can be easily proven false by virtue of the fact that everyone who believes that God heals them of all their diseases ultimately dies. And if we connect that to atonement, then what does that mean? It meant the atonement was insufficient. Now, just because you can't interpret this text to mean that we can claim healing from disease based on Christ's work on the cross... That doesn't mean that physical infirmity, that sickness, that illness is off the table for discussion. In fact, the primary problem in view here with the words griefs, sickness and illness, sorrows, literally in Hebrew, pains, it's not about the judicial position before God of being a sinner. These are very practical. These words are speaking of the real life consequences of sin, what we experience as a result of sin. God told Adam that if he broke his law, he would die. What happened to Adam? He died. He experienced the griefs. He experienced the sorrows. In fact, those words, griefs and sorrows, it it encapsulates all that mars our life, all that pockmarks our life because of sin. That we do have diseases. We do age. We do have debilitating conditions. We do have pains and sorrows which can be emotional, can be spiritual, can be physical. And we join creation in groaning for that day when the results of sin are now taken away, when they're mitigated and and done away with. So why would Isaiah be speaking of something so lesser, such as physical illness, versus the, the larger, bigger, more important context of sin? 
Well, very simply because this text in Isaiah 53 is telling us that, that Jesus isn't just pronouncing us innocent of sin by virtue of his substitution. He's also pronouncing that we will be saved from the results, from the consequences, from the sorrows, the outcomes of sin. That salvation from sin isn't just a judicial proclamation, but it's a change in status that changes your destiny. That there will be a day when consequences of sin are no longer a part of your life. And this is very important. The, the results of sin and the fact of being in sin, th- those are joined at the hip. So if you solve one, you must solve the other. Salvation from sin would have a very hollow and insincere ring to it if Jesus said, I'll save you from your sin, but in eternity you're still going to get the coronavirus and still occasionally die. That would be incomplete. And the atonement and the healing of all consequences of sin now, they have to go hand in hand. In fact, Matthew chapter 8 gives us an example of this. Matthew 8 tells the story of Jesus literally cleansing crowds of demons and diseases and infirmities. All kinds of great miracles. He heals a leper. He healed a Roman centurion's servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law who was dying of a fatal illness. That's just in one day. And in Matthew 8, 16, it says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. But here's the clincher. Matthew's inspired gospel gives us the reason. Matthew 8, 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So what was Jesus doing here? Why was this so magnificent? Well, what he was doing was demonstrating what a kingdom that is devoid of sin, that has no sin, that's devoid of rebellion, has no rebellion, and under instead the protective loving hand of King Jesus, he gave us a preview of what it's going to look like. Can I put it this way? He showed us what a world without sin would be like to experience. Sin-free, disease-free, infirmity-free, grief-free, sorrow-free. By the way, where the prosperity gospel heretics, where do they go wrong? They want to deal with disease, but not deal with sin. But the two must go hand in hand. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is a, a little conjunction that it emphasizes something unexpected. In fact, it can be translated, however he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Why is that? Well, the previous phrase says, we esteemed him not. In other words, we didn't know that's what he was doing. But however, surely he has borne our griefs anyway. In fact, the previous verse, verse 3, he was despised, he was rejected, we esteemed him not. We didn't hold him in high regard, we didn't hold him in respect. But what this text says is that regardless of what you think you saw at the cross, regardless of how this appeared, regardless of the fact that Jesus Christ would be counted as a criminal, what was really happening is that he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. The judicial robes of God were on, court was in session, and a guilty verdict was rendered as God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Christ has borne and carried in his death all that sin has done to you and would do to you. 
Now that brings us to our text in John 19. In, in John 18, 19, and 20, we've been examining John's narrative of Jesus going to the cross in a series we've called The Glorious Gospel as the major elements of the gospel message are really rooted and embedded directly in these shocking events in these three chapters. And we've put together a short gospel presentation based on these texts, and we've been adding to it as we go. And by the way, uh, the part that we're examining today somehow got left out of the written version that we gave you a few weeks ago. But here's our written presentation so far. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his father's plan for suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Therefore, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. But to be part of that kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. And today, Christ's suffering carried the sorrow of your sins. Christ's suffering carried the sorrow of your sins. He he carried the, the sorrow, the consequences of sin that was rightly aimed at you. And so this morning, I'd like to outline some of the sorrows which Jesus experienced which were rightly yours. And and I have one very simple goal, and that is to make you thankful. That is to engender gratitude in you that we could have hearts that are filled with thankfulness and and continually spending our lives in service to our Savior, delight in our Savior, and always looking to see the sorrows that should have been ours, but were his instead. And so let's just outline some of these sorrows which he experienced that should have been yours, should have been mine. The first first sorrow, excuse me, we'll call... The sorrow of association. The sorrow of association. Now we pick up here in John 19 at the very end of verse 16. He's been delivered to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now, as we witnessed last week, Jesus now receives his second flogging, this one, the, the savage verberatio we spoke of, in which several soldiers would, would whip Jesus in quick succession with leather straps that had pieces of bone and metal uh, tied to the ends. And these would have exposed muscle and bone. In some cases, it exposed internal organs. And so Jesus was in bad shape at this point. And Jesus started out carrying his own cross beam of the cross called the patibulum. The the other gospels detail that eventually Jesus was too weak to carry the cross and we would understand this from the massive beating and the blood loss that he's just endured. And so the Romans compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the patibulum, this cross beam that would go across Tradition has named the route that Jesus took to Golgotha, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. It may have been that Jesus was tried by Pontius Pilate at the fortress of Antonia, the the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. Some feel that's where Pilate tried Jesus. This is debated, but it's a, a fairly reasonable assumption. But in the centuries since Jerusalem Uh, Since that time, Jerusalem has been conquered, been destroyed, and and the streets have been changed and altered. So trying to trace that exact route 
is probably not possible. But we do know this, that Golgotha was just outside the gates of Jerusalem, most likely outside a gate called the Geneth Gate. And there was Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull. No one knows why it's named the place of the skull. The most likely conjecture is that there's some sort of skull-like appearance to it. But it's definitely appropriately named as a place of death. The Latin equivalent in the Vulgate, which is the ancient Latin translation of the Bible, Golgotha, is translated in a word that's very precious to us as Christians, Calvary. Now, it's very artistic, and it's the subject of numerous famous hymn lyrics uh, to sing things like, On a hill far away, but I hate to pop this bubble, nothing in the Gospels explicitly says Jesus was crucified on a hill. That is more the subject of conjecture and art. But one thing does help us. At the very end of the chapter, in verse 41, we get a detail that's, I think, often overlooked. It says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. A garden. What a contrast. You have the blood and the screams of agony of crucified men in a garden. And in fact, it was the same garden in which the tomb which would later receive Jesus' body was located, very close. The word for garden here speaks of something substantial, something big. It speaks of a well-cared-for orchard. Now, we should remember that in Israel, particularly in Jesus' day, Israel boasted one of the most, being one of the most lush parts of the world. In fact, in Israel, it's said that something is blooming all year long, and it's really true. But when Jesus was put on the cross, it's even more so uh, true that things were blooming. This is springtime. Uh, The garden would certainly have olive trees, probably cypress trees as well. Uh, Certainly fig trees and date palms. Those were just standard. Many gardens and very popular all around and in Jerusalem had pomegranate trees. And right at this moment, at this particular uh, period of time, the pomegranate trees would be blooming with these bright red flowers. The garden would have any number of types of indigenous flowers. In fact, several types of flowers that we take for granted here in our country originated in Israel. The Bible mentions a prized flower called the crocus. This may be a rose. Others think that this is what's called the meadow saffron. This is a purple flower with this bright orange center from which we get the expensive spice saffron. Uh, It's so expensive at various times it costs more than gold does. The most precious of flowers to the Israelite at the top of the list was the lily, sometimes called the iris. Ironically now that is a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. No garden worth its salt would be missing those beautiful white six-petaled lilies. Spices would be grown in the garden as well. This was common. You would have coriander and cumin and dill and sage. And so you have this scent of flowers. You have the, the blooming pomegranate trees and these aromatic spices all in the air. This is just, it's almost mind-boggling. It's paradoxical. It's peculiar The Lord Jesus Christ is surrounded by tremendous beauty and he couldn't have any of it. The beauty of the earth that he created was no longer for him because now he was associated not with blessing but with cursing. He was the cursed one. He was the condemned one. And there it says they crucified him. The upright beam of the cross 
called the Steepest, was already at the site of the crucifixion. It was probably about nine feet high. It was either laying on the ground ready to be dropped into a pre-dug hole or it was already upright. In either case, the patibulum, the cross beam, was, was laid on the ground and Jesus was made to lay down on it. And we can only imagine the agony of laying on his back when there was no skin left and muscle and bone are now completely exposed. His arms were stretched out and very likely tied with a rope and then nailed to the patibulum at the upper palm and lower wrist, severing the nerves to the hands. Then they bent Jesus' knees and and twisted his legs so that a single nail could be driven through his feet to come out at the heels and anchor into the steepest, the, the upright beam. Why crucifixion? Well, crucifixion was synonymous with disgrace. It was synonymous with, with terror. It was, it was considered a, a death for the lowest of the low, such as slaves, prisoners of war, or rebels, or revolutionaries. And part of the point of crucifixion was the other humiliation of the victim. It, very often they were crucified completely naked, and they were often nailed to the cross in bizarre positions. And they could stay alive for days and once lifted up, the victim would then enter into a horrific battle to breathe. It would be a continual cycle in which the victim would have to exert all his energy to lift himself up, to be able to take a few breaths. But then he would be too weak and in too much pain to stay up and slump down again, now unable to breathe fully or even to breathe at all. And so death could come through suffocation. It could come through congestive heart failure. It could come from complete brain damage due to lack of oxygen or simply from shock. And in fact, the bodies, generally speaking, were left up so long that the vultures would come and eat them. Crucifixion was considered so terrible that a Roman citizen, even one convicted of a capital offense, could not be executed by crucifixion unless under special orders from the emperor himself. But I want to point out something. While we know from other sources the details of crucifixion to help us understand the level of agony that Jesus endured, do you notice that none of the Gospels go into the great details of the physical miseries on the cross? Now, why is that? Because the emphasis in the Gospels isn't on the physical misery of Christ. It's on the fact that the death of Christ was a, a, the death of a sinless man, that's the true sorrow. That's the true shame that this was, this was a horrible miscarriage of justice from a man's point of view. The Gospels are not designed to simply make an emotional appeal to the reader to feel sorry for Jesus or to sympathize with him. Much bigger than that. The sorrow isn't the sorrow caused by the cross, but the sorrow caused by you and by me and by the sin which put him there in the first place. That's the sorrow The sorrow is that Jesus is being treated as one for whom the delights of this earth is characterized by this beautiful garden all around him. These delights are off limits. He is now cursed from the earth. And humanity does not want him alive anymore. And this sorrow of association is more clearly demonstrated even by the company that he was in. Verse 18, two others were crucified with Jesus. Now, John doesn't give any more attention to these than that one note, but his emphasis seems to be on the contrast between Jesus and these two men with whom he's crucified. They are true felons. They are probably revolutionaries like Barabbas, 
while Jesus, as we'll see in verse 19, is a king. And this fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: for dogs encompass me, a circle of a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This fulfills Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Listen, one of the consequences, one of the sorrows of sin is that your sin made you a sinner. You're associated with every single human being who has failed to meet the righteous, holy, pure standards of God. But Jesus now is associated with sinners. He's identified as a sinner so that you might be identified as righteous. Identified with the righteousness of God, associated with the purity of God, associated with the virtue of God. And so for your sake... Jesus endured the sorrow of association. There's a second sorrow he endured. We'll call this the sorrow of humiliation. The sorrow of humiliation. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What was the purpose of this type of inscription? Well, it was very simple. It was to list the crimes of the person being crucified as a deterrent to those watching. It was a very effective, very effective means to keep people obeying the law. But what was Jesus' so-called crime? Remember that Pontius Pilate multiple times said Jesus was not guilty. He never said he was guilty. And so he simply puts what Jesus is charged with by the Jewish leaders. Now, it did imply that eventually... Pilate ultimately charged Jesus with treason, but that only gave him the excuse to crucify him. But it also included kind of a last jab at the Jewish leaders that Pilate loathed. He refused to have the sign say that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews, but rather identified Jesus as the king of the Jews. The notice was written in three languages. Aramaic, that was the common tongue of those in Judea. Latin, that was the official language of the occupying Romans, and in Greek, of course, was the international language of the empire understood by most everyone. Now, this is very important because this is written in three languages. Everyone would hear about the crucifixion of Christ, and and this was intended to circulate to the widest possible population. What Pilate, listen to this, what Pilate intended as a warning, but God intended as the beginning of the spread of the gospel. And in fact, extra-biblical sources confirm that the crucifixion of Christ became widely known very quickly in all of the known world. Just decades after the death of Christ, the Roman historian and senator Tacitus, he wrote an account of the burning of Rome, which happened in A.D. 64. Emperor Nero had likely started this fire himself to get rid of less desirable parts of Rome so he could build his own planned buildings there, but he needed a scapegoat. Nero needed a scapegoat because Rome thought he did it. And so who did he pick as a scapegoat? He picked the Christians in Rome. And Tacitus writes this. 
But all human efforts, all lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration, the fire, was the result of an order. Of whom? Of Nero. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, that is Christ, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And now for the second time in John's gospel, an unbeliever serves as an unknowing prophet of the truth. When did the first time happen? We saw this uh, earlier. Caiaphas, the chief priest, had told his fellow leaders in John 11, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And now Jesus, judge and executioner, Pontius Pilate, has unknowingly, accurately identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the King of the Jews. This is so unjust. How is it that the one who is the king of the Jews, making him the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, how is it that the best that he receives at the end of his life is so bad? He doesn't receive a throne. He receives thorns. He doesn't receive reverence. He receives reviling. He doesn't receive worship. He receives whipping. He doesn't receive a coronation. He receives crucifixion. The one who deserves the angel of heaven, angels of heaven to, to sing his glory, the one who holds the universe together by the word of his power, the one whose radiance cannot be seen with the naked eye in all of his glory. He's given just one little name. In fact, we could make a comparison that the one whom the Bible calls Yahweh. The Bible calls the Lord our righteousness. The Bible calls the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. The Bible calls the son of David and the son of Abraham, a shoot of Jesse, the root of Jesse, the righteous branch, the root of David, the root and offspring of David. The Bible calls him the son of God, the son of the most high God, the son of the living God, the son of the blessed one, God's one and only son. The Bible calls him the bread of life and the light of the world. The Bible calls him the true light. He's called the gate, the door. He's called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. He's called the resurrection, the way, the truth, the life. He's called the wonderful counselor. He's called the vine. He's called the true vine. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, the master, the teacher, Emmanuel, the holy one of Israel, rabbi, great rabbi. He's called the king of Israel, the servant of God, the lamb of God, the prophet, the prince of peace. He's called the king He's called the ruler over Israel. He's called the king of the Jews. He's called the deliverer. He's called the ruler of the kings of the earth, the ruler of God's creation, the king of the ages, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's called the great priest. He's called the high priest. He's called the great high priest. He's called the mediator and the savior and the savior of the world. He's called our Passover lamb. He's called the apostle. He's called the image of God. He's called the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the heir. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is God. He's the everlasting father. He is the righteous one. He's the holy and righteous one. 
He's called the Word. He's called the Word of Life, the Advocate, the Word of God, the Faithful Witness, the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last, the Faithful and True, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord, the Author, the Prince, the Author and Perfecter of our faith, the Bridegroom, the Head of the Church, the Stone, the Cornerstone, the Chief Cornerstone, and He gets a wooden sign? Are you serious? How degrading, how humiliating. He got the wooden sign that should have been yours and yours would have said rightly condemned of sins without number. He endured humiliation. He endured the sorrow of association, the sorrow of humiliation. There's a third sorrow he endured. We'll call this one the sorrow of liquidation. The sorrow of liquidation. Where did Jesus come from? You remember John 17, verse 5? He reminisces with his father. He reminisces to his father of, quote, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now all his possessions are liquidated. They're given away. Chapter 19, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. They took his garments. Probably the best guess Four pieces, they took his belt, his sandals, his head covering, and his at least his outer garment. There is debate as to whether Jesus was crucified completely naked or not. Romans normally did this, but the Jews abhorred public nudity, and they may have uh, left him with a, a small bit of clothing. In, in either case, Jesus is in a completely degraded position Now, the squad of soldiers who were carrying out the executions that day, they divided four of his clothing items. It tells us that this was a small squad of four. That's half the size of a normal Roman squad of eight. It may be that each of the three victims had a squad of four assigned, so there could have been more. The other Gospels tell us that a centurion, a commander of a 100, was present as well, and he likely didn't take part in that division of the clothing because he was better paid than uh, those under his command. Jesus had a tunic, sort of an undershirt, and it was a single piece woven from top to bottom. This is made very clear that two different types of cloth were not used. That was forbidden in Leviticus 19.19 and in Deuteronomy 22.11. So Jesus was quite literally a lawkeeper down to his undergarments. He, he kept the law, the whole law. But why this detail about this single piece tunic? Now, we do want to be careful not to randomly assign symbolism, which may or may not be true. The ancient Bible student Philo, one of the instigators of the allegorical method of Bible interpretation, he said that this seamless tunic was the symbol of Jesus making his church unified. Well, two problems with that. First of all, there's nothing in the text that says this. And second, if that's the case, Jesus just had his church taken from him. So we don't want to go to, to pointless symbolism that we're just guessing at. But there are some important reasons for this detail. I want to just briefly give you four. 
Four reasons for this detail. First of all, it confirms very clearly that this is an eyewitness account. This is an account by someone who saw this. The Apostle John was close enough to look and say, oh, there's no seams in that. He was right there. And so this confirms every detail as being true. This is the account of an eyewitness. The second reason this single-piece tunic is important It confirms Jesus as the object of all Old Testament messianic prophecy. He is the object of of prophecies of Messiah in the Old Testament. It demonstrates the sovereignty of God shown down to this little minute detail. Four pieces of clothing divided plus the tunic. And we see... This was to fulfill the scripture. Now, it's very interesting in John's gospel, this phrase of fulfilling the scripture, those phrases accelerate as we get closer to the cross. They come faster and faster and faster and faster. We see an important connection here to Psalm 22, 18, which makes this exact prediction, which is cited there in verse 24. And this is a psalm of David. This is important because Jesus is the promised Davidic king the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. And Jesus himself now makes this very important connection even on the cross because he expresses himself in the words of Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so down to the least little detail, Jesus Christ is the one spoken of in the Old Testament. It's the third reason this is important. And put yourself in the sandals of the original Jewish reader. Here's the third reason. It proves that the suffering of Christ was God's will. It proves that the suffering of Christ was God's will. To the original Jewish reader, if the scripture has already ordained this event down to this tiny detail, then God alone must have planned this. And this is a way to give the unsaved Jew saving faith that this is God's way of saving you from your sins, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one spoken of in the Old Testament. But there's one more reason this is important, and I think probably for our purposes this morning, the the most relevant. This little event of the taking away of Jesus' clothes, this represents the final laying aside of glory. This is the final laying aside of the glory of God. The very last possessions that he has on earth are now stripped from him. This is the final step in the kenosis, the emptying of Christ. He never lays aside his deity, but he has laid aside his glory, the manifestation of his brilliance. Philippians 2 verse 7 says that Jesus emptied himself. Kanao, that's where we get the, the word kenosis, the theological idea of the emptying of Christ. And what did this look like? Well, first, he left heaven to become a man, but not just to become a man. Philippians 2 says he came, became to be a, a man who's like a servant, but not just a servant, a servant who's faithful unto death, but not just faithful to death, but faithful to death on a cross. And now, just before losing his life, he quite literally loses his very last possession on earth. Literally, the shirt off his back. And listen, Jesus became what you are. Having nothing whatsoever to commend himself, he became what you were before God, naked and ashamed like Adam and Eve because of sin. 
And so Jesus Christ had all that was rightfully his liquidated. He even lost his clothing so that you, as Revelation 19.7 says, could be granted to you to clothe yourselves with fine linen, bright and pure, so that you could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and so that you could be counted worthy As Ephesians 6.11 says, to put on the whole armor of God, to take up the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God, dressed in the clothing of God. Because Jesus lost everything. He became nothing so that you could have everything. He became naked so that you could be well clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. Christ endured the sorrow of association, of humiliation, of liquidation. Finally, he endured the sorrow of separation. He endured the sorrow of separation, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Other gospels say that these women stood far off, but there were several hours of Jesus on the cross. So certainly a coming and going could easily have occurred. Who were these women at the cross? There is his mother, Mary. There's his mother's sister, we know, is Salome, the mother of James and John. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas. The ancient historian Eusebius presented evidence that Clopas was was Joseph's brother, making Mary uh, the wife of Clopas, now Jesus' aunt. And then there was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene owed everything to Jesus since he had delivered her from seven demons, as Luke 8 tells us, and saved her from her sins, saved her from the consequences of evil. And by the way, critics and skeptics who say that the Gospels are essentially made up uh, by an anonymous author, what author making up a story would have four characters and three of them named Mary? They're all historically accurate. Mary was a common name. Jesus' mother was widowed by now. And she was now a dependent on her oldest son, Jesus, who had been to this point fulfilling the law by providing for her the law of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which demands honoring one's mother and father. At the death of Jesus, normally what you would have are the other sons coming to take care of her. We know that he had four younger brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Mark 6, 3 tells us that. But there was a problem with those four boys. They weren't believers. In fact, Mark 3.21 records his family, his siblings, trying to forcibly take Jesus away from crowds because they said amongst themselves, quote, he is out of his mind. And sadly, John 7.5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so Jesus will not entrust the care of his own mother to her sons, but to his friend and cousin, the one whom Jesus loved, John, the author of this gospel. By the way, it says a lot about who your real family is, doesn't it? Your real family is the body of Christ, those who believe Christ. Jesus himself pointed to those who were following after him. 
on one occasion and said, Here are my mother, here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and mother and sister. Listen, even from the cross, this rebuke of his brothers is of the highest order. He's basically saying to his brothers, You don't believe in me, therefore I will not entrust mom to you. Now, it does have a happy ending at this point because his brothers would come to believe in him. We see his brothers with his mother in the company of Christians, believers in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. His brother James authored the New Testament book by the same name, likely uh, the earliest New Testament book written. His brother Judas, um, by the way, he went by Jude because if you're named Judas, that's like being named Adolf. Nobody went by Judas after that. But Jude wrote the great and final epistle of the New Testament, Jude. But what was Jesus doing here when he says to John, Behold your mother. And he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. What's he doing? This is a condemned man about to die who's saying goodbye to his mom. He's saying goodbye to his mother. There's something incomprehensible about the separation of death. We're not built for it. We're not made for it. We're not set up for this. It's such a mind-blowing shock to our souls that we can't even function after death. It's grief on a scale that really can't be quantified. And what about Mary? What must be going through her mind? For all of you mothers, I know it's just incomprehensible to you. Does she have a desperate desire to rescue her boy? Does she have flashes of memories of literally the best child that any mother has ever had? Perhaps memories of taking lunches to Joseph and Jesus in the carpenter's shop, the the visit of wise men after Jesus was born, the worship of the shepherds, the angel Gabriel telling her this child would save his people. And in the midst of all of his suffering, Jesus, ever the law keeper, made certain his mother is cared for, and he, I can't wrap my mind around this, he appoints a replacement for himself. And he says to John, behold your mother. And he says to his mom, behold your son. Listen, one of the greatest, most tremendous joys that we have as Christians is that we will always be together as the family of God. We'll never be separated. We'll never have to miss one another again. Not only will we be never separated from Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we'll never be lonely. We'll never be isolated. We'll never be quarantined. We'll never be left out. And this is made possible by the one whose final separation on this earth was from the one who gave birth to him. And particularly when he was enduring the wrath of God, there was no comfort for Christ. There were no joys of fellowship. Jesus was utterly alone. That is one of the sorrows, one of the consequences of sin. Listen, I've heard unbelievers joke. They joke to my face. Oh yeah, I'm going to hell. But I'll be there with all my friends. We'll all be having a good time. Yes, all of their friends may be there, but they won't be together. Hell in Scripture is called the place of weeping and crying and torment and agony. There's never a hint of fellowship of any kind except one. 
one little interesting picture, a metaphor really, that we get in Isaiah of the greatest men in all of history taunting and cursing one another in the grave. That as great kings continue to arrive in death, the newest arrivals are taunted. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 10, says, All of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we are. You have become like us. In Hebrew, it's ha. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. This is no promise of fellowship. This is merely a metaphorical picture of all the great men of history who do not repent of their sins being brought low into the eternal torment of a horrific picture of a maggot-infested, worm-infested, infinite death. But for you and for me, who know Christ because Jesus endured the sorrow of separation, you will spend eternity with countless brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. Sweet, sweet, perfect fellowship in Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the throne of God on new earth and in new Jerusalem, never, never, never enduring the sorrow of separation again. In the late 1800s, Philip Bliss read the text of Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows. And he wrote the hymn that is so precious to us today. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who claim ruined sinners to reclaim. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, he in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full redemption can it be? Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry, now in heaven exalted high. And when he comes, our glorious king to his kingdom, us to bring, then anew this song will sing. And if you know the hymn, you're going crazy right now because you know what the last line of every verse is supposed to be. It is an exclamation, hallelujah, what a savior. That all the sorrow, all the eternal consequences of sin that should have been yours, instead he took them. So that by faith, not by any so-called works of righteousness, but by faith and faith alone, you might receive the new life which leads to no more sorrows. No more. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this text of Scripture which gives us a clear picture of the terrible agonies endured by the Lord Jesus Christ such that we could be your children. We thank you and we praise you for this time that we have enjoyed here together. I pray that the word of God would do its work, that the Holy Spirit would nail the nails of these truths deeply into our hearts so that we might rejoice and be thankful that the sorrows which Christ endured are now no longer ours. And ours instead are only the joys and the delights and the bliss of knowing Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.